coming up on this episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. If you start um, making a difference in the marketplace by sm smarter purchases and cleaner products start displacing the sketchier ones, whether it's on the cosmetic shelf or in the grocery aisle or what have you, that starts changing the whole industry. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Hyman here. Now, so many of my patients ask me how I manage to work multiple jobs, travel frequently, well, not so much anymore, and spend time with my family and still focus on my health. I know it can seem hard to eat well when you got a lot going on, but the trick is to never let yourself get into a food emergency and to stay stocked up with the right things to support your goals. So recently I discovered Paleo Valley beef sticks. I keep these beef sticks at home and at the office so I know that whenever I'm in a food emergency, I have a healthy and delicious option to keep me on track. It's no secret that I have high standards when it comes to what I put in my body and Paleo Valley beef sticks checks all the boxes. They're gluten-free, grain-free, dairy-free, soy-free, and non-GMO. Plus, they use 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef which not only adds to the flavorful taste, but it also means they're free of any harmful antibiotics or hormones that you'll find in most meat. With grass-fed beef, you'll get more nutrients than you would with beef fed with grains, things like higher levels of omega-3 fats that help reduce inflammation and more B vitamins and other antioxidants to support your body's converting food into energy and also more of the fat-soluble vitamins that are beneficial for a healthy heart. Plus, instead of being processed with chemicals and other questionable ingredients, these beef sticks are naturally fermented, so you get gut-friendly probiotics with every bite. How cool is that? Right now, Paleo Valley is offering my listeners 15% off your entire first order. Just go to paleovalley.com forward slash hymen to check out all their clean paleo products and take advantage of this deal. That's paleovalley.com forward slash hymen. I definitely recommend stocking up on the grass-fed beef sticks to keep in your house, in your car, and in your office. It's one of my favorite tricks to staying healthy while on the go. I'm always being asked how to source high-quality meat and seafood, so I want to share one of my favorite resources with you that I use to get quality protein in my own diet. Unfortunately, most meat and seafood at the grocery store is not really serving our health. Conventional-based animals have higher levels of inflammatory fats, not to mention antibiotics, hormones, and other harmful compounds we just should not eat. And the seafood can be full of heavy metals and other toxins, or just lacking nutrients in general. Don't even get me started on the environmental and inhumane aspects of conventional meat and seafood production either. That's another huge issue that we can improve by shopping more consciously. And that is why I love Butcher Box. They make it super easy to get humanely raised meat that you can trust by delivering it right to your doorstep. Butcher Box has everything you could want, like 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and wild Alaskan salmon, and shipping is always free. Butcher Box is committed to humanely raised animals that are never given antibiotics or added hormones since they take out the middleman, you get extra savings. There is a major stipulation I always tell my patients about when it comes to animal protein. Quality needs to be a priority. And with ButcherBox, you can feel good knowing you're getting the highest quality meat and seafood that will help you thrive. Right now, ButcherBox has a special offer. New members can get two New York strip steaks and two pounds of wild-caught Alaskan salmon free in your first box when you sign up at ButcherBox.com forward slash pharmacy. That's ButcherBox.com forward slash pharmacy with an F, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y. Now let's dive back into this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman, and that's Pharmacy with an F, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, a place for conversations that matter. And if you care about food, if you care about your health, if you care about the environment, if you care about climate, you better listen up because today's podcast is with one of my good friends, uh, an inspiration to me and many others, uh, one of the leaders in the environmental movement, Ken Cook. Uh, and he is the president and co-founder of the Environmental Working Group, which I'm on the board of. He's recognized as one of the country's leading environmental spokespersons and influential critics of industrial agriculture, which, you know, I'm no fan of. And he also talks about how we need to protect our families and our children from toxic substances and is really focused in on that with his work in the environmental group in a very data-driven way. It's very impressive, science-based, data-driven, no opinion, just fact. Uh, under Cook's leadership, uh, the Environmental Working Group, or EWG as it's now called, has pioneered the use of digital technologies that empower families with really easy-to-use science-based tools that help reduce their exposure 
to harmful ingredients in food, in our drinking water, in our cosmetics, what we put on our skin, our face, household products. And I use these tools every single day. I recommend them to my patients because how do we know what's going in us and on us if we're not paying really close attention? And Ken Cook and EWG has done the hard work to help inform us of what's out there so that we can make an informed choice about what we want to put in our bodies or not. Uh, Capitol Hill, uh, which has uh, got a great newspaper called The Hill, lists Cook as its um, top lobbyist in Washington, one of its top lobbyists. He has had such an influence on our policies, things that you probably aren't even aware of that he's been behind. Uh, and the environmental working group is often called the tip of the green movement spear. So Ken, welcome to the Doctors Pharmacy Podcast. You know, when I was uh, in junior high, I read a book called The Greening of America, which was this incredible environmental book that also opened my eyes to this yeah. thinking. And it sort of led to a lot of the things that I was focused on, which is uh, the environment. And at the time, there wasn't climate issues that we talked about much then, but, right. you know, environmental degradation and, and, and even agriculture. And I remember studying this course in a summer program I went to when I was uh, after my freshman year in college called the Institute for Social Ecology with Murray Bookchin. And he was a, oh, an yes. anarchist. Love and his he, work. And, yeah. Yeah. And he was so awesome. far ahead of his time. He was talking about climate change back in the 1960s and was writing about it. And he created this incredible program uh, on, uh, on environmental issues and agricultural issues. And we took this course on biological agriculture and read about you know, one straw revolution and the unsettling of America and soil and health. And so all these things are sort of were percolating in my mind, understanding yeah. ecosystems. And it really led to a lot of the, the work that I'm doing now, which is really ecosystem thinking about human health, but also how it intersects with the environment and our food system. And so you've really been a pioneer in bringing some of these ideas out that I, I actually wrote about in Food Fix, which um, kind of highlighted the challenges with our current agricultural model. Yeah. And I'd love you to sort of highlight, take us on a little history journey of your work in, in the EWG to understand the intersection of, of our agricultural system, the, the way in which the agrochemicals are affecting uh, environmental, climate, and human health, and also um, how the food itself is, is a source of harm for so many of us that's produced from this system. So, I mean... Um... I, I got my master's degree in soil science, and then I got a job in Washington working at the Library of Congress. And this was, was during the period when we had the great farm economic crisis. There were tractors on the mall. Farmers were very upset that they were getting low prices just after former Secretary of Agriculture and late Earl Butts uh, had told everyone to plant fence row to fence row. We were getting the government out of agriculture. The world couldn't uh, needed all of the food we could possibly grow, plow up everything in sight. Farmers did that, and then came the hangover from the party, which was fa uh, depressed farm prices, incomes, mounting farm suicides. We've seen some of that lately, again, because we got it wrong, right? We overbuilt the sector and started using more fertilizer, more pesticide, uh, cutting down trees, eliminating wildlife habitat on farms to get every single acre we could into corn and soybeans and wheat. It was a disaster. Well, that's when I started looking at agriculture policy. I'd never really paid much attention to it before. So my first involvement was to find ways that we could utilize this huge amount of money that we were spending on agriculture subsidies in a way that would actually benefit the environment. And so with a small group of people in the early to mid 1980s, that was kind of how I made a name for myself in agriculture and environmental circles by coming up with ideas that eventually got into law. Now, they weren't, they weren't by any means perfect, but we were just trying to find some way to deal with this problem. We have about a billion acres of land in farms, private land, uh, and it, it contributes a tremendous amount to water pollution, air pollution, it's where we grow all of our food, most of it's used to grow stuff we don't eat directly, but we feed to livestock. Mm. Um, just, you know, 20 or 25 million acres is used for fruits and vegetables. And of 400 million acres is used to grow this commodity stuff. 
That's yeah. where a lot of the damage was happening. So we were trying to look at some of those subsidy flows and say, well, how can we protect wildlife, water quality, reduce pesticide use by coming up with ideas that move some of that investment in a better direction because most of that land, most of those farming practices are completely unregulated. I mean, farmers mm. will say otherwise, but there's no, they're, they're not regulated under the Clean Water Act, barely regulated under the Clean Air Act. Pesticides are regulated, but we still are using plenty of them and I think mm. a lot of them are unsafe. So that was how I initially got into it. And I, I learned how to become a lobbyist. Um, after my first <laughs> doing research, I started working as a consultant and I was hired by Sierra Club and Audubon Society and American Farmland Trust and a whole bunch of other groups because I had this weird knowledge of the subsidy programs and conservation and the environment. So that was really, um, believe me, it was not, it was not visionary. <laughs> it just landed in my lap that I had those skill sets at a time when the environmental community was kind of really waking up to agriculture in a way that they hadn't since since yeah. Carson. So what's going on right now is is this movement towards regenerative agriculture, which wasn't even a thing back then. It wasn't even a, a name of something. We talked about organic. We talked about yeah. sort of reducing the environmental inputs, uh, the, the toxic inputs from agrochemicals. But now there's this movement toward regenerative agriculture that is actually incorporating a lot of the ideas that you uh, ha, had really been exploring through the environmental working group and advancing yeah. through the farm bill and food policy. Um, what's your perspective on this whole movement? And, and you think it's going the right direction and what are the challenges and how do we, how do we accelerate it? Yeah, I'm excited about it. I mean, I think uh, I, I'm excited about organic because I think it does a tremendous amount of good, but it's still small in the, on the American landscape and in the uh, shopping cart. Um, as Phil Landrigan likes to say, organic is still private school for food. Um, yeah. What we need is <laughs> what we need is public school for food. We need it to be available for for everyone. So, uh, on the health side, I'm 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 encouraged that people are thinking uh, holistically now. Regenerative agriculture is great for a lot of reasons. It's great because you know as 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 we've modeled it and others have, it's going to mean less chemical inputs. It's more more reliance on natural cycles. Uh, less emphasis on uh, you know massive agricultural production and more focus on food production. There are some concerns we have that maybe we're overstating the case a little bit about what we can do with respect to storing soil carbon as long as we're farming. We we do worry that some of that is um, is exaggerated. In a good in a for all good reasons, people want to think that agriculture can make a, a huge contribution to climate change and it can make an important one. But I am a little bit worried that people feel like that we can keep emitting all the stuff we're emitting, industrial and in transportation systems, power plants, and that somehow agriculture is going to fix all of that. And that's, that's well, it's both and right. It's it's, it's both, both and. and that's right. Yeah. We need both. But I think regenerative agriculture, people are we used to talk about it in the in the 70s and 80s as soil health. Regenerative yeah. sounds cooler. Um, but, uh, but the, the idea is really the same to, to take the soil seriously and, and, and to farm it, um, as if it's a, a living part of, of the system, as opposed to just a repository where you dump chemicals around roots and you get uh, yield at the end of it. It's much, much more than that. So for 50 years, you've been in this stuff, you know, you've had your hands deep in the dirt of all that's going on in, in our environmental agricultural and food systems. You know, it, it, we have a new administration coming. If you were the uh, food czar or the ag czar or the secretary of whatever that had the authority to change some key policies, what do you think are the biggest levers for change? What are the biggest problems that we face now in food and agriculture systems? And what are the biggest levers that would make a real difference? Well, it, and then by the way, I'm asking you this because yeah. I know how deep you've been in the arcane data and minutia of the farm bill and the food policies and the ag policies and the chemical policies. So there's probably very few people on the planet who understand all of it in the depth that you do and would have a, a really important perspective. So it's not just sort of a throwaway question. No, no, I, I appreciate it. It's a, it's a great question. Um, well, the, the most important word maybe in, in, in what you said was lever, leverage, because we don't have very much unless we can somehow utilize this flow of money that comes out of the Department of Agriculture to better ends than it's used now. I mean, we're, 
we're coming into a very difficult situation. The uh, president-elect Biden and uh, vice president-elect Harris, there've been these huge subsidy flows going to farmers, mostly the larger ones who collect most of it, mostly growing corn and soybeans and cotton. Uh, and they, are we going to wean them off of those big payments and use some of that money to invest in conservation, to solve some of the problems we have with regenerative agriculture? Uh, are we going to invest more in you know, uh, getting more access to fresh fruits and vegetables? Mm-hmm. All of those changes are within our means, but they're not happening politically because we don't yet have the cloud. And so one of the first questions will be, does the Biden administration uh, you know, to, to what extent do they ask uh, for some reforms in how we spend all this money, our taxpayer investment? And if you go to our website, you can see exactly where we spend money. Each farmer, we list how much they've received over the decades. Sometimes the most conservative get, get the government off my back voices in rural America get plenty of money directly deposited to their bank accounts from USDA. So First yeah, it was all, shocking to me to, to find that, like, I think there were 50 millionaires, farmers who received over a million dollars in subsidies each. You know, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, no. And the Trump bailouts, which he, he uh, you know, put in place to deal with his China trade war that was hurting farmers when China retaliated against soybean growers and cotton growers. Uh, all of that has made things much more difficult for the Biden administration in the agriculture sector. So the first thing I think is to you know find a leader at USDA that has the trust of 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 the president and vice president, the new administration, to really take us in a different direction. There'd be three things I would look to. First of all, I would you know I would look for ways to invest in conservation and environmental protection on the farm uh, instead of just uh, assuming like we've always assumed that the more we grow, the more we can sell. Uh, the environment be damned. Let's just plow it all up, cut up, cut down the trees. Um, you know, let let's go for broke. And when we don't have a market, we'll ask taxpayers to bail us out. That whole cycle has to end. We've spent four hundred and fifty billion dollars or so that we track in our uh, payment system since nineteen ninety five alone. You could have bought a substantial amount of rural America for that amount of money, and we're still in the same place we were when we started four hundred and fifty billion dollars ago. So. We, we need some creative and courageous rethinking there to, to reset. And part of that's going to be more conservation practices on the ground that keep pesticides and fertilizers out of our water, that encourage farmers to plant cover crops and take other practices that can, you know, at least reduce some of the impacts on the climate, uh, restore our stream banks to trees and capture carbon that way. Simple things. It's not, it's not really... Uh, rocket science but that's the yeah second, that's the first piece Re- i mean you have to remove subsidies. the commodity subsidies because i think this is a real debate right you need to end subsidies or crop insurance what they call crop insurance yeah. maybe you can explain that because we talk about subsidies and people get confused between subsidies and crop insurance but the idea is that we we support a system that promotes the growing of commodity crops, wheat, corn, and soy that are turned into processed food that kill people, that cost huge amounts in healthcare dollars. And in the process of growing that food, creates massive destruction in the environment through nitrogen fertilizers, glyphosate, herbicides, pesticides, soil erosion, loss of biodiversity, overuse of water resources. So we're we're in this vicious cycle that just self-perpetuating. How do you break that cycle and and do these does this sort of current model, how do, how do you sort of crack the code on that? Well, that's, and that's just it. The, you know, government funding is baked into that business model. It's a big part of what drives it. And that's our money. It's not farmer's money. It's taxpayer's money. And we should all have a say. And that, that includes, you know, having a say over, you know, do we have unlimited basically funding for the largest farms so they can get even bigger and use these mechanical and chemical systems to uh, continue to affect the the Midwest? Or do we start putting some limits on that? Do we start investing in farmers who are willing to take conservation practices seriously on their land? I think we can do that. And I think there's actually quite a bit of support in agriculture for that. But it's going to take someone to stand up and make that as a statement. The second thing we need to do is we need to take care of hungry people. We need Mm. right now, especially, we need to invest in healthy food, 
so that everyone uh, has access to it. And that means uh, low-income people, whether or not COVID's happening, we have lots of Americans who don't have access to clean and healthy food. We ha should have universal uh, school food programs, feeding programs that carry through through the summer for low-income kids uh, so that they get healthy fruits and vegetables and a diverse diet. Um, we need to wean them off as much meat as they're eating now and wean them more in the direction of, of healthier eating habits. We could do all that. We have more than enough money to do it, but we have to make it a political priority and we have to stop demonizing people who need support to eat well. Um, yeah. And the final thing we, we really need to do is we need to make a, a very serious investment in how we're going to grow out the, the food production process in this country. I think it's best to do it on a demand basis as opposed to spending money to grow more pears and apples. But I think we need to have you know institutions like hospitals being smarter about the, the investments they make in diet, school systems the same, corporations. That needs to come from the private sector in some ways. Uh, and the government's role should be, well, let's, let's, let's pro provide some ad additional assistance so people can afford the, these healthy uh, eating habits that we want to instill in them. If we did just that, um, regenerative agriculture would fit right in. Uh, we, would, we would begin to start uh, you know, restoring our badly damaged landscape. Uh, we'd, save, we'd save on pesticides, we'd save on nitrogen fertilizer, we'd use uh, animal waste more judiciously. All of those things could fall in order but we have to have the political will at the top to do it. And so yeah. far, <clears throat> agriculture is kind of a, a backwater in most administrations. The Department of Agriculture is not accorded the high priority it should. And as a result, a lot of these tough decisions get, get punted down the road. Well, it just seems to me that the problems we're really trying to solve, right? Chronic disease, the pandemic of COVID-19, which affects those who are obese and chronically ill, which is mostly yeah. caused by food, the yeah. economic impact of that, the climate change issues, the destruction of rural communities, you know, the, the social injustice and rest, the, these are all linked to food. And yeah. in one way or another, they're all linked to food. And, and so the big problems that we're trying to solve, I mean, the four policy agenda items of the new administration, you know, addressing COVID, economics, addressing the climate issues and racial justice, these are the four stated goals. They're all linked to food. Yeah, they all are. <laughs> you know, in different ways, right? I mean, COVID is is a lot of our a lot of our deaths, and and the reason we're getting so sick and filling up the hospitals compared to other countries is because of the level of vulnerability of our sick and overweight population yeah. caused by food. The economy, you know, one third of our federal budget is for chronic disease, which is caused yeah. by food, and and soon to be more, including a third of state budgets. The um, social injustice and unrest in part has created some of the health because of some of the health disparities in these yes. communities that don't have access to real food and the, um, and, and the climate issues, uh, you know, are, are arguably the most important factor in addressing climate is addressing the food system, right? Yeah. And you can argue that it's 30% or 50% of climate change. It's right up there with fossil fuels or bigger. Yeah. No. And, and if we don't, and nobody's talking about these linkages or how to think about these problems as one problem and the solutions that you laid out and kinds of simple, simple, doable things that don't need advanced technology or billions of dollars of investment. They're, they're just facilitating things that we know already work and already how to do. I mean, even, yeah. even things we were talking about in terms of, you know, helping these communities we, we we're willing to have a you know mask mandate in in many states it's not a, something the federal government can do but they're talking about this mask mandate what about having a mandate that any uh, federal program or state program that's that's buying food has to support regeneration of human health and regeneration of environmental and planetary health that would be a simple guiding principle and there that's there are right. programs like the good Food purchasing program, which outlined the principles of how do you buy food for institutions like schools or prisons or government buildings or universities or I mean, there's hospitals, all of which receive federal funding, right? If you're yeah. a hospital and you're getting Medicare dollars, well, the Medicare dollars should be tied to optimal nutrition in the hospital. Not like you know, I had back surgery this summer and I made a post it was I had trouble before, but it basically showed my breakfast after I woke up from surgery which was basically French toast with ma fake maple syrup with caramel color, which is carcinogenic, plus a high fructose corn syrup uh, uh, in my um, 
in, in, in the, in the juice that I got of and course. a muffin, which is full of sugar and uh, a creamer, which had trans fat, which has been banned by the FDA or basically real not safe to eat, even though it's still, it's still in the food supply. And I was like, wow, this is going to kill me. This is an inflammatory healing with that <laughs> breakfast, right? No, Waking no. Up to that. But, but why, why can't we do that? And I think those, those are some That's of the it. issues that you've really struggled with in yeah, terms of the environmental working group. Yeah, tying those things together. And again, it's, it's often economic signals that come from the government uh, that, uh, that could be righted. Um, we, you know, we, there was an attempt um, in the Obama administration and Congress uh, took some steps to fix school lunch. And there was an uproar about it, uh, you know, fighting back, saying, we, we, you know, how dare you get rid of our, our, our pizzas and our French fries and uh, mm. all the rest. So that battle is there. But I think um, over time, you know, the, the, the culture is too slowly moving in the direction where there's a, a greater health consciousness. And, mm. and so we don't need to just rely on, on USDA and agriculture. We need to have, you know, more doctors like you out there and a healthcare system that supports them, right? What about health insurance supporting healthy eating? What are the measures we can, we can take to improve there to incentivize that? Um, we can't we can't spoon feed everybody healthy food, but we can we can certainly change all the signals that are encouraging them now to to think that their health is something separate from what they eat when it's not. Yeah, no, it's not. So all of these things require leadership um, and vision at the at the White House, and and the White House needs to empower an integration of the the health insurance system we have in place that certainly needs an overhaul the agriculture system that we have in place that needs a complete overhaul too. I think if you have that kind of leadership, uh, there'll be a, a lot of opportunities in the coming years. Even if you can't do it with a stalemated Congress, there are a lot of things the administration can do on its own. And we're certainly hoping that they will. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the fact that even climate change is being discussed as an issue exactly. is a big advance. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think to just stopping some of the bad things that have happened in this administration, pesticide bans that were reversed, pesticide approvals that were expedited, uh, yeah. you know, whether it's uh, glyphosate, uh, the, the, the active ingredient in Roundup or chlorpyrifos, the insecticide that was slated for a ban under the Obama administration, very bad for children's brains. Obama stopped the ban. Uh, we need to, you know, we need- for I mean, Trump Biden stopped the ban. Trump, I'm sorry, Trump stopped the ban, I misspoke. We want, we want Biden to come in and restore that ban and uh, make sure mm -hmm. that we, we don't use these dangerous outmoded chemicals that were, have been on the market, you know, since Sputnik in some cases, and it's time for them to go. We need new, new technologies for controlling pests in agriculture. Well, I mean, when you create a regenerative ecosystem, there, there really isn't as much need for herbicides or pesticides yeah. or fertilizer because the ecosystem itself provides all that. Yeah, uh, that's, that's exactly We call it right. integrated pest management. I mean, we plant marigolds in the, uh, in the garden so you don't get pests. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you brought up glyphosate, which I want to sort of dive into a little bit because it's something that EWG has really worked intensely on. And, and most people don't realize the, the fact that this herbicide uh, is the most widespread agrochemical used in the world. It's on 70% of all crops. It is deadly for the microbiome of the soil which is critical for yeah. not only storing carbon, but also providing nutrients for the plants that we get. Uh, and there are a lot of potential health consequences that are being explored in billions of dollars of lawsuits that have been uh, waged and many won with billion dollar settlements. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Mark. My main goal with diet is to use food as medicine, but even when we eat super well, most of us are missing out on certain essential nutrients. Our soils have become depleted and our digestive tracts just aren't working so great. They're compromised by stress and toxins and they just can't absorb nutrients as efficiently as they should. And that's why I always used and I recommend to my patients a multivitamin and mineral as nutritional insurance. It covers the basics for all our day-to-day -day body functions, all the things that we need that our food might be missing. But there are so many products out there I wouldn't go near because they contain artificial fillers or inactive ingredients, and you have to be pretty picky. The one I trust and take myself is Athletic Greens. They use high-quality, highly absorbable forms of vitamins and nutrients from real whole foods. Athletic Greens comes in a powder that tastes great and mixes easily with water or smoothies, 
and specifically supports my gut health, immunity, energy, and recovery. And it's not just vitamins and minerals. It has phytonutrient-rich superfoods and adaptogens and pre- and probiotics and even digestive enzymes. I love that they add the digestive support in their powder since so much of our immune strength and overall wellness starts in the gut. It's really one supplement that covers so many bases and you'd be hard-pressed to find something else in this comprehensive form in any single other product. I use Athletic Greens in the morning as part of my daily routine, and I love having it with me whenever I travel. I also love that it's diet-friendly, whether you're vegan, paleo, keto, dairy-free, or gluten-free. Right now, Athletic Greens is offering my audience a full-year supply of their vitamin D3 K2 liquid formula free with your first purchase. Now, these two nutrients are also so vital for a strong immune system and strong bones, and many of us are not getting enough of them. I use the Athletic Greens powder and their D3 K2 formula to make sure I get extra nutrients that complement my diet. They're also going to give you five free travel packs as well. Just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash hymen to get your free year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free travel packs with your first purchase. You'll get it delivered straight to your door and I promise you'll feel the difference Athletic Greens can make in your daily wellness routine. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash hymen. Now let's get back to this week's episode of the doctor's pharmacy. The the, the glyphosate issue is is a big deal. So can you talk about you know what EWG has done to highlight it? What you have learned about the environmental and health consequences? You know what's true, separating fact from fiction, and, and what we really need to do about it because it it just seems like it's everywhere. It's in the water, and uh, you know I, I did my glyphosate test, uh, my urine test, and I thought oh I'm not going to have any glyphosate because I don't really eat you know, GMOs and I'm very careful and I try to eat well, but the truth is I travel and I, and I eat out at restaurants and I don't always have control over my food and I don't know what I'm getting. I try to eat real food, but even if you eat real food, you know, it's, it's in there, it's 70% of all crops. So I had like 50th percentiles, like, Oh my God, you know, yeah. I need to pay attention. So tell us, tell us about the EWG's well, journey was, on addressing this. Yeah, this was, this was, a. a, a a weed killer that came along really in force in the 90s. It was invented much earlier, but in the 90s, it was matched to uh, bioengineering technology that allowed them to develop crops that were resistant to the weed killer. So you could spray a field while the crop was standing in it, after it had been planted and it had popped up, you could spray that field and kill all the weeds, but the crop would survive. That's the that's the genesis of why we have so much Roundup in our world now, used on, as you say, uh, hundreds of millions of acres. It's in air in the Midwest during the spray season. It comes down in the rain. Um, it's it's everywhere. Um, it, it, it you know I, I liken it to in a way sort of the oxycontin, right? It it was something that at it, at the beginning had some merit, obviously, for a therapeutic treatment of severe pain. And this was not the worst weed killer molecule out there, glyphosate. There are others that are worse. What made it so bad was the greed to take it from a certain market level to a mass market level, multi, multi billion dollar market level where it was used everywhere and abused. So what we face now is it's in air, it's in water, it's in all of us. Then they started using it at the end of the growing season for other crops that weren't genetically engineered to resist it, like wheat and oats. So they would spray wheat and oats right at the end of the season when it had grain on it. And that's probably why you got your 50th percentile, because mm -hmm. when they did that um, er, late in the season, it was right there in the, in the final food. And when that went to the miller, it stayed in. And when it went to the baker, it stayed in and it came out. It's in it's in hummus. We found it there. It's in Cheerios. Yeah, people it's don't in, realize it's it's the the number one top product that contains glyphosate. The most amount is hummus. Yeah, which and, is and crazy. It's, it's bizarre, right? And so people so, are eating it to get healthy, right? And so because it was used on you know used on 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 chickpeas at the end of the growing season to make the harvest easier and it's cheap, and so. It got, so all of these abuses, uh, first of all, those end of season abuses, which probably account for most of the dietary exposure, the Biden administration should just go in and say no more post harvest or you know end of harvest use of glyphosate. That would immediately lower a lot of the exposure that we you know we experience in the food supply. 
but but it really it's it's a it's a story about uh, mistakes we make over and over again in agriculture where lunging for that big market you know growing as much corn as you can growing as much soybean as you can and have the pesticides and fertilizers to go with everybody makes a lot of money um, as, as long as the system's working but the accountability for the environment and health is close to non-existent. So mm. for glyphosate, what we're saying now is, look, it, at minimum, we should end all of this late season use that gets it in our food. And then we should uh, dramatically reduce use uh, in residential and uh, home uh, uh, situations where it's sprayed oftentimes by groundsmen. These are a lot of the cases that are the subject of the litigation now. They're spraying it uh, out of backpack sprayers around their properties and so forth. That needs to end. Uh, we need to put very tight controls on that, if not banning the, the compound altogether. And then for agriculture generally, I think we, we need investments in systems that don't require this uh, heavy use of Roundup. They're, they're available and out there, but they're starved for money. Farmers, you know, like all the rest of us, we, you know, we, we do the things that we do. If, if someone told me this, the camera here on this uh, computer was, was carcinogenic and I couldn't use it anymore, I'd be, I'd be concerned. Right. So, but these are tools. Yeah. We can fix the tools. We can fix the tools. Yeah. And that's what we need to have, you know, the, the leadership at the federal level to do because the companies won't do it themselves. And what we've learned from so many of these uh, cases you mentioned is there's consideration now of a, a multi-billion dollar, like a $12 billion settlement of thousands of cases where people have developed cancer. They've gone to court and said it was, it was caused by glyphosate and they won a lot of these court cases. What we really need to think through is that um, if, if, if going forward, we can avoid some of these chemical exposures and reduce that cancer incidence. And if we can make sure that when these suits are settled, uh, they, they direct Monsanto, now Bayer, to make some changes in how this chemical is used in the economy, we'd be, we'd be much better off. But the real thing that has broken through here is when we, from the discovery in these lawsuits, we've realized that Monsanto knew a long time ago that there were problems with this chemical. They didn't tell anybody. Yeah, yeah. They hid the information, but that has come out now in juries. And that's really what, that's really what gets men on juries upset. It's not the toxicity per se. Yeah. It's yeah. that they were lied to. Right. Um, and, mm. and I think that um, behind many of these chemicals, PFAS chemicals to Teflon chemicals, many of the pesticides we worry about, Behind them is a story of, of companies knowing there were problems and not not being required to or not you know not complying with the duty to report and explain that this is toxic stuff. They knew, yeah. it, but they didn't tell us. Now the Environmental Working Group has been really at the forefront of highlighting these chemicals, doing the research on them, bringing this to light to policymakers, and maybe you could share a little bit of the successes that you've had sure. around getting rid of these chemicals in our food, water, air, agriculture, because I don't think there's been any other group that has been as effective in using science and data to change policy as the environmental working group. Oh, well, thanks. Well, and I know you're, you start with science yourself. So I really appreciate the compliment coming from you, Mark. No, we, we've, you know, we've gone about in, in a number of ways. Um, one way is we do, we do research and, and present it to federal agencies. We take it to Capitol Hill and make the case, hey, look, this, this chemical is posing risks that are, shouldn't be accepted. We need to fix our regulatory system. We need to enact stronger laws. We need to take action in regulatory agencies. And we've had considerable success on a number of chemicals, like the perfluorinated chemicals, the Teflon chemicals. We were instrumental in getting federal action on a few of those. Much more needs to be done. Uh, chlorpyrifos, we, uh, our, our work in the 90s helped take it out of a lot of uses, particularly around the home. And there are many other examples. But that's a other, pesticide? That's a pesticide. Chlorpyrifos is a bug killer, uh, an, an insecticide. Pest so pesticides are weed killers, bug killers, rodenticides that kill rats and stuff. It's in that mix, the insecticides and fungicides tend to be uh, some of the most toxic. And, and we've worked on all of those as well as Roundup. But you know, the real thing that's changed, Mark, and it's, it's been exciting to see it. We don't know exactly where it's going to go. Because the internet allows us to engage with so many people simultaneously and get feedback from them and uh, inform them at a pretty low 
cost point. We don't have to go through a front page story in the New York Times to get information to people anymore. Yeah. We, yeah. They can come directly to us. They can come to your, you know, your podcasts and, uh, and so forth. That has begun to build an awareness in people that companies are beginning to listen to. I mean, it's behind the growth in organic food and agriculture, certainly mm -hmm. behind uh, efforts to clean up personal care products, the work we've done, rating cosmetics and cleaning products and so forth. What, what I'm excited about now is that we, we no longer have to just rely on the government taking action as the first step. We can start with consumers taking action uh, to protect themselves and their families, companies starting to listen to that. And we often then find the companies come with us to Capitol Hill and say, you know, it's time to change the playing field, add some tough new rules. Our consumers want it, the market's demanding it. Uh, let's, let's take action. So it's instead of really saying that uh, the market is substituting for the government, it's really market forces that can be harnessed to support civil action, to support change at, at the regulatory mm. level and the legislative level. We're seeing just this year, we had uh, almost two dozen chemicals banned in California from personal care products. Uh, we had the agreement of the industry to do it. They were outmoded. Some companies still use them, but not the majority. Consumers were rejecting them in the marketplace. And so we came together with the trade association for the cosmetics industry and worked together to get those banned. That's beginning to happen more and more often. So uh, it's, it's kind of, it's different than the way it's, it worked when I was coming up as a lobbyist where you'd take science to Capitol Hill, you'd hear, uh, you know, feedback from, bipartisan people of goodwill, they'd pass a law, they'd pass regulations after the law and yeah. industry would comply. <laughs> doesn't work that way anymore. Now it's science comes out, consumers see it first in yeah. many cases. They start changing their behavior. Companies pay attention. When they pay attention, they realize that maybe they need to go to the government because if they're doing the right thing and other companies are sneaking by and doing the bad thing, they're at an economic disadvantage for what they're trying to do. The right way so it it's just shifted the dynamics in some yeah. interesting ways well so we don't think about your personal behavior can matter not just for your own health but when you add it up in the marketplace it creates a demand for better behavior from companies and that's translating into policy slowly yeah that's exactly what i want to talk about next because ew is not only focused on the hard work of bringing science to policymakers and getting various chemicals banned or regulated you created an interface with the consumer, which has actually been among your most successful efforts because you could bang your head against the wall a long time in Congress and the White House and agencies. And you realize that by going directly to the consumer and providing them with tools to understand what they were exposed to and how to avoid those chemicals, that it cr creates the demand, which then drives the free market businesses to change their supply, which then wants them to change the regulation. So it's this beautiful virtuous cycle. So let's talk about some of the things because I think, you know, most people don't understand if you just go to ewg.org, there's an enormous amount of resources there that are really available and pretty much free, including the dirty dozen and clean 15 list of which are the most contaminated and least contaminated fruits and vegetables, the skin deep, uh, resource database, which looks at skincare products, which is probably what you use to, to do the regulatory changes in California. Yep. Absolutely. What household products you should be using or not using. If you're eating animal products, which ones are the best for you and the environment? Which fish you should consume that's grown, harvested or, or, or farmed sustainably that also is the least toxic. So you have all these incredible resources uh, that are really user-friendly, that are often around apps that allow people to really at the point of sale find out if their toothpaste or their face cream or their, you know, broccoli is safe to eat or consume or put on their skin. And it's really an incredible uh, an, inc an incredible resource that I don't think most people understand. And, and I, I was shocked to learn when I joined the board of the environmental working group about how much data there is that drives these apps. Yeah. There's just, you've got teams of scientists combing the research database and then putting it in a user-friendly form. No one's going to go on PubMed and read 15,000 papers. 
but you guys did. We will, so you don't <laughs> and, have to, right? And, I know you, you do sit, it, but yeah, that's right. Most I don't know. Won't. Of and, course not. And they won't. And you synthesize that into these incredible. So, so talk about the development of these tools. What are the what do they do? Tell us about about some of these things that you've created yeah. that help people change their lives and change their health and drive the change in the marketplace and ultimately the policy. Well, it's one of my favorite things to talk about because it was it was my failure <laughs> of imagination that, that that led us there. Um, in a way, we you know we we started as a policy shop where we thought our job was to bring information to the forefront uh, so that policymakers would take action and things would get better. This was the environmental model for a long time, um, and and it still would be without the internet. We'd have very few tools to make the marketplace change, but the internet's changed all of that, of course. But it what it, our our first endeavor was the dirty dozen. So here we are. We're we're making the case that we should get some pesticides off the market that are sketchy. Right? They might be. They may ca cause a threat to the nervous system. They might be carcinogenic, even mildly carcinogenic. If you you don't want to eat a lot of that, if you can avoid it, um, they might might cause problems for the endocrine system. They might affect the immune system. All these biological effects that we we saw in the open literature and even the government regulators were pointing to, but they couldn't get the job done. They couldn't get the pesticide off the market or out of the foods that we wanted it out of. So we thought, well, why don't we just show people how they can shop for themselves? We know organic will get you out of most of those whack-a-mole problems with the chemical toxin of the day, just buy organic. But what about conventional where maybe the levels are low and we found government data, we still use it every year, where because of the type of pesticide they use and when they use it on the product, uh, the human exposure at the consumer end is low. That became the, the dirty dozen, the ones you want to buy organic, and the clean 15, where you could, you could buy conventional and you'd still avoid pesticide exposure. We just did this because I kept getting asked, what can I do while the government's making up its mind for decades? <laughs> for decades, right? Some of these chemicals have been in regulatory jeopardy uh, you know, since, uh, since I was in my 30s, which was a while ago. And, and so we started, we, let's put this list out. And, it exploded. People loved it. It was on refrigerators. People would come up to me and say, you're the dirty dozen guys, aren't you? Didn't, you know, and although we weren't guys doing it, mostly it was women on the staff who were doing it. Um, it was, it was amazing. And, and then, you know, we saw as the media environment got tougher to break through on, well, now we've got the internet, we can go directly to people. So this brilliant scientist, Jane Houlihan said, well, why don't we look at the chemicals and personal care products? Cause she mm -hmm. read a study that was published by the CDC that showed that phthalates, this plasticizing agent was used uh, in, in nail polish and other cosmetic products, and it was showing up at worrisome levels in the blood of women of childbearing age. And the CDC scientists, it might be personal care products. And we're thinking, what? That's, is that an environmental issue? Personal care products? Well, maybe it is. If it's ending up in us, why not? She starts building this huge database uh, that became skin deep. We thought we were going to use it to change policy. The first use was by shoppers, shoppers, people who said, what, what, how do I avoid this stuff in my fingernail polish? How do I, and, and what's all the rest of it in my shampoo and my skincare and my lipstick and my eyeliner, my mascara on and on. So it just sort of rolled out from there. And I, you know, I joke, I mean, it really was not a master plan. It was, it was being led by the interest that people showed us where they were starting from people online, just, sh just shopping, just, and, and, you know, we get a thousand people an hour coming to the skin deep website and we probably mm -hmm. get uh, 4,000 people every day downloading uh, the, the dirty dozen because people want to help themselves. And this is, this, it, it's not really just about EWG. I think it's how environmentalism has changed Mark. And it's not just uh, in food and personal care and cleaning products. It's even in, in energy we've seen a, a shift so that we the possibilities in front of us now are as exciting and plausible as we had long hoped they would be right solar mm -hmm. panels are now real 10 years ago when we were debating the last big climate bill no one hardly mentioned it on the floor of the house or senate right batteries were something you put in a flashlight instead of how you could store energy on site even at mm -hmm. huge power mm -hmm. plants what mm -hmm. was Here's the change. What we're fighting for now is as important as what we've been fighting against. Yeah, it's true. Right? 
you're fighting for good health. We know how to, we, if we can do it, we can fix healthcare. We, we're fighting for healthier food. We have models out there that show us what's healthier. Um, energy, automobiles, we're electrifying the fleet. We're getting rid of fossil fuels. Um, all of that exciting momentum um, is happening now in part because environmentalists push back against the bad stuff for a long time, but also because that same push unharnessed, released this tremendous creative energy that can reinvent our economy, reinvent medicine as you're doing. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, if we had, if we had 10% of our doctors operating in your mode, no, I'm going to say five, right? The population health, we begin noticing, right? You know, at that level. So, and, and you're, when you, when patients come to see you, I'm not one of your patients, I probably should be, but when patients come to see you, I know what you tell them is the positive things they can be doing to take charge of their right. own health. What, you know, yeah. what they're fighting for is as, as important as the diseases they're fighting against. You're giving them something to grab onto. You're giving them a sense of empowerment and control. Yeah. And those small steps that they build their habits around one success, small though it may be after another, is what's, I think, the future of the modern environmental movement now it's from Rachel Carson's day. We, yes, we have to fight against the bad chemicals like she did, and we will not stop doing that ever at EWG. But we can also tell you that there are plausible alternatives out there now. It's not Yeah, it's things. really it's true. <clears throat> yeah. It's really true. And I, I just reminded me of uh, a meeting I had in, in Abu Dhabi with one of the guys who runs their entire sovereign wealth fund. And we were just chatting about different things. And he said, yeah, we're, we're heavily investing in solar energy. And I said, why? You guys have enough oil to last hundreds of years. And <laughs> he says, it's cheaper now for us to use solar energy to desalinate our water than it is to use our oil, which is unbelievable. So I think I think we're Everything's we're changed. seeing those changes, yeah. And I think I think changed. you know I always talk about what is the true cost of what we're doing. What is the true cost of the food we're eating to our health, to the environment, to climate, to biodiversity, to our water resources, to soil health? I mean, what what are the true costs? We're not we're not actually paying those costs at the no. checkout counter and the price of the food. We're we're paying those through enormous burdens on our on our taxes, right? Because we pay medical for the consequences. Bills. Yeah, medical bills, environmental destruction, all the consequences. So we don't yeah. really have a free market economy. We don't have free market oh. capitalism where the the corporations are protected from the consequences of their adverse behavior, whether they're intended or not. You know, I don't think Coca-Cola, when it started in 19 or 1800 or something, thought it was going to create a massive epidemic of diabetes. Right? It wasn't yeah. a bad, it tasted good. It had a little cocaine in it, gave you a little kick, a little caffeine. It was yeah. all right. Yeah. It took the cocaine out, but, but it still become, and then they, you know, it's high fructose corn syrup. It seemed to be cheaper. It was great to do, but all these things then we learn about and have to adjust what we're doing and, and empower people to actually do the right thing. So I think we have to, to look at the true cost of the things that we're doing, which Absolutely. you really, really make a, a great point of in a lot of the work you're doing. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting, I think, now to use some of these databases. I mean, I, I, I use Skin Deep, and I, I remember seeing a patient who um, we measured urine levels of her phthalates and parabens, and I'm like, they're off the chart. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, I use sunscreen every day. I'm like, great. <laughs> that might be a problem. Why don't you pick a better sunscreen that doesn't have all that junk in it? And, right. and so these tools are so incredible. And, you know, I just encourage people to check out the website, EWG. Oh, it's just a treasure trove of resources. And also it's, it's a nonprofit and it's, it's dedicated to improving your health and planetary health. And so if you feel moved, I encourage people to donate because it is, I donate every year because I'm, I'm committed to the organization and I, I believe everybody should do what they can. If you feel disempowered and you don't know what to do and you feel like you want to be part of the change, you know, this yeah. is an incredible organization and check, I would encourage you to check it out because oh, can nice. you really put your life's work into this? And uh, you're pretty tireless. I don't know how you do it. And you're, oh, you're, you're a like privilege. a dog, you're like a dog with a bone on this stuff. And I think it's, it's, it's just, it's, uh, and I hear you speak and I just listen to your talks when we, we go around the country in different meetings. And I, I just, I just am so in awe of the, the level of sophistication, understanding and depth, because there's a lot of fluff out there, a lot of, people saying things without real depth of understanding. And I think the environmental working groups efforts to bring science and bring coherence and bring key 
efforts and strategy changes, both for human health that people can do on their own and become empowered, and also for policymakers to actually have data. You know, I I remember talking to one of my uh, one of my friends, Sam Cass, who worked in the Obama White House. Of course. And he's like, you know, all the agribusiness companies, all the big food companies, they'd come in, they'd have their policy briefing books, they'd have their regulations written, they've had the legislation already written. Like they literally have their lobbyists write the legislation, give it to the policymakers who are very busy, don't have time to do all the research. They go, this sounds good, sounds great. It's like a, it's like a dog and pony show with a great pitch. He's, and but a there check wasn't really comes any, with it. A corporate check, and a comes, check with comes with it. it. A yeah. check comes with it. Yeah, that's right. A check comes with it, and and they they really then just translate those into regulation policies, not out of any bad intention because it seems good. But on the other hand, he said there was nobody coming in from the food movement, from regenerative agriculture, from understanding human health consequences of our food system to say, here's, here's what we need to do. And I think that's really what's got to change. And environmental group is one of those few organizations that's been doing that work for decades. Well, thank you. You're very kind to say so. I mean, you know, um, we we do believe that it, uh, I, and I think you probably agree with this. The, mo- the most powerful force in in healthcare is it is an informed and engaged uh, patient. Yeah, right. Someone who's taking taking uh, control to some degree of their uh, of of their own future, their own fate in the in the health system. And it's it's true, you know, across the board. But what's beginning to happen now is people are understanding that they you know they they need to do more. Uh, they need to act in civil society to get the next level of change. You can, you can do all kinds of things as a patient to make your life better, and you can hold your doctors accountable and so forth. But at some point, we need to have better medical uh, care, better, better medical practices to, to really fully realize our, our human potential. It's the same in food, it's the same in personal care, same in, same in energy. But that, that's coming from, from people who are uh, finding their way, especially young people now. I mean, what could be more exciting, right, than seeing so many young people concerned about climate change, concerned about toxic chemicals, concerned about environmental justice? Um, you know, we, we see such uh, growing interest now in going back to agriculture, uh, black farmers. You know, we've been involved in that issue for a long time, fighting for, for their rights and, and their justice in a, a a system at USDA that's been anything but fair to them. Yeah. Um, so, so it's just an exciting time to, to feel that energy uh, kind of being rekindled. And oftentimes it gets expressed um, in demands for accountability from companies, changes in the marketplace, uh, new black owned businesses and personal care and food, very exciting stuff. And, and we need to, we need to feed that kind of uh, growth, that kind of enterprise uh, to, to make the modern environmental movement really fit the times. So what I hear you saying is in the midst of really environmental degradation and climate catastrophe and all these uh, social racial injustices that you have a lot of hope that you see the, uh, the, the lights of hope popping up around various aspects of the whole system that are moving things in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I like to take a backseat to no one when it comes to cynicism, but, um, but it's at some level, it's hard to be cynical when you see so many individuals out there who've just decided I'm, you know, I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to take charge of my own health. Uh, And, and once they do that, they, they oftentimes the, the people who are active on our email list, who you know sign our petitions to government or show up for lobbying days when we do them on Capitol Hill? Um, they're often the people who've uh, taken our personal advice most seriously. They've been recruited mm-hmm. out of self-interest. They're shoppers to begin with, and then they become yeah. environmentalists, as, yeah. as opposed to the other way around. And it's pretty exciting, yeah. right? It's pretty exciting to see that transformation. So, how do you speak to people who? nor are skeptical that any one person can make a difference and that our personal choices don't really matter, that we can buy all the natural sunblock we want or avoid, you know, strawberries because they have the most pesticides. But, you know, what is that going to really do? What would you say to those people about why it's so important that well, a, we yeah. as individuals don't don't be cynical and take action? Yeah, well, it's a fair it's a fair question. Um, and I answer it in a couple of ways and I get it all the time. Uh, because people get discouraged. My response is, look, start with where you are and take stock of it, just like you'd try and do anything else. Um, and recognize that 
when you've got the time and you want to investigate ways to get involved to make civil society change, to get involved with a local organization or get involved with EWG and make a difference, you, you can, you know, you, you can sign up. There are plenty of opportunities to do that out there. And the, the awakening that you have from your own behavior is the single, I think, most important route to doing that. Uh, of course, you can sympathize, empathize with people who are suffering, uh, you know, communities that are suffering from ex extreme levels of pollution. They need our support and help. That may not be your personal experience. What good does it do? Here's what good it does. If you start um, making a difference in the marketplace by sm smarter purchases and cleaner products start displacing the sketchier ones, whether it's on the cosmetic shelf or in the grocery aisle or what have you, that starts changing the whole industry. That, that really does make a difference. And all these companies are racing to catch up. If you don't believe me, look at, look at where you get your electricity from now. This is going to change so dramatically over the next 10 years. It's going to be like when we had landlines and cell phones replace them. It's going to be that dramatic. We're going to see a completely new energy system. Why? Because we're, one by one, power plants are realizing that they can switch to solar and wind. Uh, and when they do that, without necessarily being regulated to do it, they're making more money and you're getting cleaner power. You see solar panels going up on a neighbor's house or down the road. These small changes are gradually starting to change the whole industry. And the power companies are now freaked out because their, their control over the system, their control over centralized power production at big coal-fired plants or nuclear plants is slipping through their fingers, uh, not because they're being regulated out of existence, but because there's cheaper, better stuff. That, I think, is something that you shouldn't discount. And participating in that economy, cleaning up you know, your own uh, behaviors, cleaning up your own products, your own household, making it safer for your family is a big deal. But then mm -hmm. step out and you know, join, some, join hands, join forces with people who are trying to make the food better at your school, make, yeah. which is tough, or your hospital. Or, you know, uh, get involved in uh, b behind some, uh, you know, a politician, local, state, federal, who, who's really talking about the need to do things differently. Not that we need yeah. to give up modern life, but, but, but we can change its course. So much, Absolutely. so much is within our power. So Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm all in favor of doing things uh, out of self-interest that adds up to, you know, to common interest doesn't have to be that way, but we find great power in that at EWG now. We find our most active uh, champions who show up and make phone calls are the people who've also cleaned up what's in their shopping cart and in their uh, medicine cabinet. Yeah, wasn't it Margaret Mead who said, never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. In fact, yeah. it's the only thing that ever has. <laughs> That's right. And I, I think our, you know, I always say that, you know, when you look at real change that's happened in the society, it doesn't start in Congress. It ends in Congress, right? Abolition, right. civil rights, women's voting rights, women's rights, civil rights. These things never were the ideas of politicians who came to us and said, we see a vision for a better society. They were the consequences of grassroots movements, of individuals, of people on the streets pushing forward ideas that and became you know, our, our actual way of being. And I, I think that's what you're advocating for. And I think, uh, you know, I think Environmental Working Group is one of the wedges that's really driving this movement. And I'm just so grateful for you, Ken, and the work of EWG. And I, and I, uh, and I really hope as, as we move forward in the next administration, we can start to, to pay more attention to things that we care about and matter in terms of food and agriculture and our chemicals, because we're way behind and need a lot of catch up to do. Yeah, we lost. We we've lost some ground these past years. Uh, there's no question about that. But it's uh, it's just so great to have you on our board as a, a voice of enlightened medicine and science. Um, we we feel very much at home in in that work in that end of medicine and and healthcare. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's just uh, it's a, a thrill to talk to you anytime. But uh, maybe Thanks, we'll even Ken. be in person. 
yeah soon hopefully yeah soon. so yeah. so everybody check out ewg.org for all the resources we talked about the dirty dozen clean 15 the skin deep website what household products you should buy what fish and meat you should consider eating and, and lots more incredible resources one of my favorite is good food on a tight budget which is how to eat well for you eat well for the planet and for your wallet which is uh addressing the issue of well can you eat healthy and is it just an elitist idea and there's just so many resources so check it all out and I uh, hope you love this podcast. If you loved it, please share it with your friends and family on social media. Uh, leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you of how you've impacted your personal health by maybe some of the things EWG has done or what uh, you've learned about how chemicals or toxins are affecting you. And uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Hyman. Thanks for tuning into The Doctor's Pharmacy. I hope you're loving this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do and introducing you to all the experts that I know and I love and that I've learned so much from. And I wanna tell you about something else I'm doing, which is called Mark's Picks. It's my weekly newsletter. And in it, I share my favorite stuff from foods to supplements to gadgets to tools to enhance your health. It's all the cool stuff that I use and that my team uses to optimize and enhance our health. And I'd love you to sign up for the weekly newsletter. I'll only send it to you once a week on Fridays. Nothing else, I promise. And all you have to do is go to drhyman.com forward slash picks to sign up. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks, P-I-C-K-S, and sign up for the newsletter. And I'll share with you my favorite stuff that I use to enhance my health and get healthier and better and live younger longer. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.